The Tom Woods Show, episode 1713. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by now you've probably noticed that news about the virus is almost always fact-free hysteria these days. So you need my brand new free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About the Lockdown. Go pick it up at wrongaboutlockdown.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I am going to share something with you that I had forgotten about, but I think you're going to like. Back in 2008, the Mises Institute did a project related to Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, a book I want to talk to you about for a few minutes. But what they did was they took this book that had been published in 1946, and they, in effect, updated it by going through every single chapter and interviewing a different faculty member associated with the Mises Institute about that chapter. I think, if I'm being honest, a few of the topics covered in Economics in One Lesson are a bit dated now, or they address arguments that not very many people are still making any longer. But I think the general thesis of the book holds up very well. And chances are, if you've been around libertarian circles for any length of time, you've heard this book mentioned, or you've had it urged upon you as the next book you need to read. And I do think it does make for indispensable reading. So I want to take half this episode to talk a little bit about that. And then the other half, I want to play for you my contribution to this series of recordings by modern-day people commenting on a particular chapter of uh, economics in one lesson. And what I'll do is, on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1713, I'll link to where you can watch the videos. And so those of you who have read Economics in One Lesson, I think you'll find that a really enriching supplement. Now, the book, uh, Economics in One Lesson, was written by Henry Hazlitt, who's an extremely impressive person, by the way. He actually has a Wikipedia entry that is fair to him, which is a very rare thing in this world. And he's just a, he's a very, very interesting and impressive guy. He does not have a college degree, and yet he writes on economics. Maybe I, I shouldn't say and yet, maybe therefore he writes on economics so clearly and beautifully Uh, He's very sophisticated in his thinking, and yet he can make basic arguments intended to be read and appreciated and absorbed by the layman. What impresses me in particular is that he was the chief economics and finance writer for the New York Times for a while in the 1940s until finally some editorial differences appeared, and he decided instead to write for Newsweek, which he did. Uh, He had a column there for 20 years till 1966. That was back when Newsweek was a genuine magazine. I mean, today, Newsweek.com is like Forbes.com, like any bozo can write for it, and the the quality of the writing and the arguments is highly variable. But Newsweek was actually a very mainstream, respected publication at that time. So for somebody like Hazlitt, who was close with Ludwig von Mises, in fact, he helped to smooth out the, the English prose of Mises' book, uh, Human Action, is almost beyond belief, really. I mean, it's like realizing that a man as civilized as Christopher Dawson taught at Harvard University. It's the sort of thing you hear and you just can't believe it it occurred. So what is the one lesson in economics and one lesson? Well, in some ways, it draws on the previous work from a century earlier of Frederick Bastiat, who lived in the first half of the 19th century. He was a, a French writer. And again, many listeners will no doubt be familiar with his 
uh, essay, I mean, he wrote book-length works as well, but his essay that we generally translate as what is seen and what is not seen. And his point, which is what Hazlitt is going to build on, is that it's important in economics to be able to see not just with your physical eyes, but also with your mind's eye. You need to be able to see, in effect, things that did not occur. So what he means by that would be, if we take a typical example, I won't take the broken window thing because that's been done over and over. Let's just take a bridge project. The government spends money building a bridge and then points to the bridge and says, look at this. Now you have a bridge. And everybody cheers. Oh, my goodness, where would we have been if we hadn't had that bridge built? You know, what? You know, we wouldn't have had all this great economic activity. But the point is, obviously, the resources and the manpower came from somewhere. So you would have had other things going on that now did not happen. And the thing is, those things were actually paid for and demanded by consumers. So you know people wanted those things, and now they don't get them. So the point is that whenever the government engages in some kind of spending program, it's always diverting resources from somewhere else. So it's not enough to say, look at all this wonderful stuff. We put people to work and now they have jobs and whatever. But what you're missing is where would those resources have gone otherwise? So that's what your mind's eye needs to see. Or let's say rent control. We, we put, let's say we say that no rent can be more than $500 a month. And then we point to people who have $500 a month rents and we say, look at how they've been benefited. Isn't it great that those people have to pay no more than $500 a month? But what's being left out of this and needs to be perceived by your mind's eye, while with your physical eyes you're seeing the beneficiaries of that program, are is the huge wreckage that's being left. Uh, namely, nobody's going to build more housing if they can't make a profit doing it. There's a reason that the market price is where it is. And if you artificially uh, push it down below that, well, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Number one, there'll be a drastically lower supply of housing available. So all the people who now can't find housing – those are some of the people who are victimized, but you don't see those people or, or even they themselves don't understand the connection between their plight and the government program. They don't even see it. They don't understand that they've been victimized. So that's a problem. Then you have landlords who won't do basic upkeep because they figure, well, at, th at these prices, anybody complaining can just leave and I have a huge line of people waiting to sign up to get $500 a month rent. So there are all kinds of problems that arise with, uh, with rent control. So if all you look at are the people who happen to enjoy $500 a month rental properties, you're missing out on all the victims. So the one lesson that Hazlitt is talking about, building on this, this uh, fundamental insight of, of Bastiat, that you need to see both what is physically seen and what is not seen to the physical eye, the one lesson is as follows, that when assessing an economic policy, it is not enough to consider what its short-term effects on one targeted group are, but rather to consider the long-term effects on everybody. That's the thing. Look for the effects on everybody. Don't just point to the earmarked beneficiaries. I mean, any idiot can see that those people have had some kind of benefit. That doesn't take any particular insight. The insight comes when you ask, well, since these benefits did not come from nowhere, who's paying for them? Who's victimized? Who's suffering? Where is economic activity depressed as opposed to stimulated? 
You know, look for that. Look at the entire picture. And when Hazlitt explains this to you, suddenly you realize this is the way you should evaluate everything when it comes to economics. This is if you want, really want to understand what's going on in the world, you cannot be so narrowly focused as to consider just the short-run effects on a particular group. Now, as you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the so-called Austrian school of economics. And I associate myself with that. That's the school of thought that we associate with Ludwig von Mises and, and Hayek and a bunch of other important economists. And Hazlitt is very, very much an Austrian economist. But in this book, he's not really promoting Austrian economics per se. He's really just explaining what sound economic reasoning looks like. So you won't really encounter in this book features that are distinctly and uniquely Austrian. It's, it's, it's more basic even than that, that this is the correct way of economic thinking. But you can definitely see the Austrian influence in all of Hazlitt's other economic works. And in particular, he has a book called The Failure of the New Economics, which is a line-by-line critique of John Maynard Keynes's general theory. And there, it's just Austrian analysis all over it. Uh, that's a much more advanced book. This doesn't really even take you into, into there. By the way, the, the Failure of the New Economics is a great book in its own way. But I think because it goes line by line through Keynes, it lacks the bird's eye overview of what's wrong with the Keynesian system that we really need. So you get a lot of nitpicking. And, and I, I don't mean to make it sound like I'm disparaging the book. It's a great book. And, but I just mean that you're getting little bits and pieces, but I want a critique that's more looking at the whole system as opposed to one ingredient at a time. But anyway, once you read economics in one lesson, though, you know, you'll probably want to read more. And the question is, what is the next book that you're ready to read after economics in one lesson? And you may still feel like I'm not ready to read the great works by Rothbard and Mises. So what is the intermediate book between this one, Economics in One Lesson, and the more, these more advanced texts? And the answer to that, I think, is twofold. Number one is the book Choice by Bob Murphy. That's a great, let's say, propedeutic to human action. And it's a reasonable length. I think it's about 300 pages. And it is praised by everybody. I mean, as you know, as you may know, inside the Austrian world, we have a lot of, uh, not infighting, but not every single grouping likes every other grouping. And to look at the praise for this book, it's coming from all quarters of the Austrian world. Everybody agrees. Everybody. Even people who can't stand the sight of each other. <laughs> they all agree that Bob's book choice is a brilliant work and a great work and a very accessible work. The other book that is a, a useful intermediate text between these is my own book, The Church and the Market. And, and don't let the church in the title uh, throw you you do not have to be religious in any way to benefit from this book. It really, I aimed it at a, at a Catholic audience because I felt like they needed to learn some economics, but anybody could read that book, and I'm very, very pleased with it. I think it's it's not the, my favorite of the books I've done. My, I, when I think about my favorite book, it would be Real Descent because uh, that really summarizes the kinds of topics I've covered over the course of my career. But in terms of the book that I feel has made the biggest contribution to the libertarian world and project and the Austrian world and project. It's definitely the church and the market. So I'll link to both of these books. 
uh, as well as to the video series about economics in one lesson at tomwoods.com slash 1713. All right. Now, here we go with my contribution to this, uh, let's say, revisiting of economics in one lesson. I hope you enjoy it. This is uh, Jeffrey Tucker. I'm at the Mises Institute, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Tom Woods. We're talking about his book, Economics in One Lesson. Oh, wait a minute. That's not yours. That's one of the books you didn't write. <laughs> That's <laughs> a <kind>. rare case. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this was written long before you and I were born. Right. Uh, 1946. I wish I'd written it, though. What is it? Sold two million copies? <laughs> That'd There's be it. There's some serious royalty yeah, if right. we negotiated a contract. Yeah, about right. it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so we're talking about just one chapter. And it occurs fairly early in the book, and it concerns government loans. So the idea is that if uh, the private markets will not suffice to fund a particular program or project or service, so we have to get the government involved in it. And this was 1946, and my goodness, these government loan markets have vastly expanded in that time, haven't they? Sure, with the same rationale and everything, to boot, that's right. Well, it's useful to bear in mind the theme of the whole book here for this chapter, which is his emphasis on what is seen versus what is not seen. That if you're going to think like an economist, you have to think of the consequences for everybody over the long term of whatever it is the government is doing. So he gives the example of a farmer who's applying for some loan so that he can buy a tractor or some such thing. And he contrasts the situations of farmers A and B. A has a track record for honesty and paying his debts and being creditworthy. And he's also got some assets that, you know, can be used as collateral. But then you've got B, who has no assets. He's got no track record. He might even be on government relief. And so the argument is, well, why shouldn't B get a chance, you know? And the only chance he could possibly have is if the government uh. lends him the money, intervenes in the credit market to lend him the money. And Hazlitt's argument is to note that we should remember that what's really being lent here isn't so much the money as it is the tractor. And then he's going to pay back and, 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 uh, you know, once he can. But there's a fixed number of tractors at any given time. So if I lend a tractor to one person, there's somebody else who can't get the tractor. And so what he suggests is that when you lend this additional money, this government, uh, uh, provided credit to this one guy, you are depriving somebody else of this same property. You're depriving somebody who has worked to build up a reputation for honesty and a credit rating and so on. And so, so he keeps it in that, in that light. Like why is it morally preferable that this person should get this and crowd out this person out, out of the market? So that's the type of argument. And then he also reminds us that the private banking industry has every reason to be careful under normal conditions, by the way. Let's, let's abstract from the Fed. But to right. be careful in how it makes loans because if it, if it makes a bad loan, well, then it's, it's in big trouble. So it, it has to become very skilled at determining who is a reliable and a, a good credit risk and who isn't. Because, as I say, if they make a mistake, they lose their own funds. Whereas a government bureaucrat typically has no experience here, has taken some civil service exam, you know, in which he's got to write about hypothetical people in hypothetical situations. And if one of these loans goes sour, well, you know, there are no consequences. Nobody's fired. If anything, it just goes to show uh, just how bad the situation is. We've got so many unfortunate people. Even this amount of government money hasn't helped them. We need even more. So, you know, you cannot get the government into this business because it winds up making bad loans that for good reason the private sector didn't want to make. 
And isn't it really something that in recent days with all this, with this housing calamity that's going on, that people are asking the question, well, what is it with the, with the banks? You know, they seem to have uh, lent money where they shouldn't have. These people weren't credit worthy. And yet, uh, the whole of government policy for the last, I don't know, umpteen uh, decades or whatever has been designed to, to badger them into doing exactly yeah, this. Right. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, there's the, the one argument is uh, the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires banks to make loans against their better judgment to groups that are perceived as having been discriminated against. Right. But as the record shows, in fact, if just look at the statistics. If you look at various racial groups who are assumed to be discriminated against, there is no evidence for this, that in fact they have the same default rates as anybody else. If they were being held to some higher unreasonable standard, they wouldn't be defaulting as much. So... And then we also have the fact that Asian Americans get loans at a, at a considerably higher rate than whites, and one assumes there's no particular reason for there to be a pervasive pro-Asian bias in the banking community. Right. So that, you know, that whole, but, so in other words, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act is based on a fallacy right off the bat involving discrimination. But it's, it's intended to make loans to people who don't have very good credit ratings. And of course, the egalitarian mind hates the credit rating, which is the one yeah. great, you know, criterion of, you know, trustworthiness when it comes to, to, to money. Right. So uh, banks have been required to make these loans. But it's not even just that. I mean, you've got, uh, I mean, Hazlitt in his book wants to hold off credit creation until later, but there's no reason we, right, we sure, have to sure, sure, be bound sure. by yeah. that. I mean, the Federal Reserve System, of course, pumps all this additional money and credit into the system. And as a result, banks, you know, banks pretty much at any one time have made the loans they can make. So if they find themselves now with all this new, you know, money on their hands, they've got to either lower the uh, requirements, lower the qualifications to get the loan, uh, or, and or lower the interest rate. And so what they wind up doing is again, making, making loans that under normal conditions they wouldn't have made. And then beyond this, we have these, Weird uh, government-sponsored enterprises, they're called, yeah. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Right. Uh, and Fannie Mae was once a full-fledged government agency. And then these things were really, really only came into their own as major players in the mortgage market about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And they, because... They're privatized. Yeah, they're yeah. so-called privatized, yeah. even though they enjoy tax benefits no other right. um, comparable institution would enjoy. They have regulatory benefits. They also enjoy the status of having everyone basically know that if they get in trouble, they'll be bailed out. Socialized losses. Exactly. So the risk yeah. is socialized. And so therefore, that's another incentive for banks to make risky loans because they know that Fannie and Freddie will just buy up these mortgages from them and assume the risk. And so, it, and you know, as Lou Rockwell points out, if you're inclined to say, well, wait a minute, you know, the banks shouldn't be making these shaky loans in the first place, regardless of whether or not they can socialize the risk, Lou points out, well, look, the fact is, all your competitors are going to be doing this. All your competitors will be making these loans and making money at least in the short run on them, and you'll get eaten for breakfast if you don't play the game. So the government has so corrupted the system that even somebody who wants to be an oh, honest sure. banker can't do it. No. Yeah. And, of course, it's the, in the government's interest always to distract attention from its own responsibility to things. So it's always, it's not our price controls that are causing the meat shortages, it's the farmers hoarding the meat. It's not us who are it's not we're not responsible for high oil prices. It's the price gougers at the pump. It's the oil companies, the evil oil companies. Or it's we're not responsible for the mortgage mess. It's these uh, irresponsible lenders. It's never the government. So 
It's incredible, isn't it, over the years, what an absolutely pristine track record government has. It's never been responsible for anything. <laughs> it can only Amazing. do good stuff. Yeah. And all of its regulations will we should always just, fix the problem. We should just give right. all our money to the government. Right, right. In fact, you know, one of my favorite old shows was The Honeymooners. And, I, and a lot of times Jackie Gleason would sort of improvise when he would uh -huh. do his lines. And there was one show where at the end, you know, at first he was criticizing the government about taxes. And at the end he actually says, We've got the best government in the world. We should give all our money to the government. I said, oh, not Jackie Gleason. No. Come on. So Hazlitt nailed it in 46. And I suppose that there wasn't this big national priority yet that every, every person should own a, a mansion, a, right. a, a plywood palace. But it was soon to happen, a few years later, that uh, somebody decided that uh, the very definition of being an American is that you would own a home. Um, but... And it took all these years for it to become this absurd bubble that's now exploded and is causing grave financial difficulties for us. So there might be other things out there. Now we've got the student loan problem, of course, that emerged uh, sometime between the time Hazlitt wrote the book and today. Yeah. And uh, maybe you can address that. Well, sure. I mean, the student, I mean, I'll just, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I took out some student loans, but I'm one of the suckers who actually paid them back. <laughs> You know, unlike the deadbeats who are running around all over the country going to Hawaii or something, not paying them back. But, you know, the fact is, though, that these these student loans, first of all, the ready availability of all this free credit is itself at least largely responsible for inflating the price of a college education. Because yeah, yeah. if, if the institution knows you're bringing all this heavily subsidized loan money with you, well, the price is going to go up. I mean, if we funded... The purchase of potato chips in the same way would cost, you know, $100,000 for a bag of chips, you know, <laughs> so it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. And, you know, I, I like what a lot of uh, financial advisors are starting to say, which is that young kids are putting themselves in an impossible hole at the very beginning of their lives. You know, they start off in debt 160 grand or something. Yeah. That's how they start their lives. And, you know, I mean, I've heard it said, uh, you know, that if you were to take your money and put it in almost anything, and just let it let it grow. It would have been better for you, even even when you count the human capital you're building. It would have been better than if you went to college with it. Yeah. So, uh, arguably, the best thing you should do is either, if you can possibly in in high school, get a year's worth of college in with your AP courses, cut that down somehow, uh, or finish college a year early, or spend five years there, but but work uh, work part time. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and learn something. Way, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, if you can get out a year early, you know, then this is, you know, th there's an opportunity cost there that you no longer have to bear. You have an extra year's salary. Yeah. I mean, you have to think of, you know, Gary North has a lot to say about this, but you have to think of unorthodox solutions to the price of an education. But, but the student loan situation is not helping young kids. It's absolutely right. burying them. Right. So it really is a calamity. I mean, you've got this argument that, well, the government has to give these loans because private enterprise will not. And yet, it seems as if private enterprise will not, then they shouldn't be given at all. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that's an indication that society in some way is making clear through the market the type of risks it's willing and interested in taking. I mean, it, it's somewhat analogous to the fact that suppose in 1974 uh, we had known how to make an iPod, let's say, but of course we just weren't at the level, like, the ability to produce the stuff was just still way, way beyond us. We could probably have produced an iPod in 1974, but when you think of all the resources that would have been required to extract from society toward this project, it would have been totally out of line with consumer desire. You know, right. So the market has a way of balancing the fact that, yes, we'd all like iPods in 1974. 
or we'd all like every single human being to have a four-year education, you know, heavily subsidized. But the fact is we can't have all these things. There's a trade-off involved, and the market helps us to balance these things out rationally. You've written a lot about economics and morality. And your comment earlier about credit ratings being an indication of, of uh, trustworthiness, and uh, I wonder if you could elaborate on, on that, uh, the extent to which credit and credit ratings actually help shape our characters. Hmm, well, the way you put it, I'd love to hear you elaborate <laughs> on this, as a matter of fact. Well, no, it just no, occurred I, to me when you said that. I mean, this is one way that the markets help helps train us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, if you follow your credit rating, if, if you subscribe to any kind of service, it'll actually tell you, this is why your score is what it is. You've got these positive elements, but you've got these negative elements. You keep opening up new credit accounts. You keep doing this or that, or, or you know, you won't pay this bill. You know, you're being a bum or something. And it, it tells you this. And if you want people to interact with you on the best possible terms, then you know exactly what you need to do basically to improve your own character, not to take on purchases that you can't possibly really meet the, the, the cost of. I mean, you, you do learn these things, and these are good qualities that you should have as a, as a human being. And, and also, we should, we should bear in mind, we're not saying that, you know, therefore, you know, very, very few people should have houses. There's no way to know. There's no non-arbitrary way to determine how many people should live in, their, in, in homes they own, how many should rent. You know, the market has to determine that. But I do think that maybe a lot of people should just have smaller homes. Yeah. You can still own your own home, but yeah. not everybody has to have a gigantic mansion. And I do kind of like um, Karen DeCoster's term that she invented that's now in the Urban Dictionary. It's the 2000 air. It's the guy, he's got the brand new home, the two beautiful cars, he goes on great vacations with his wife, and they've got $2,000 in the bank. <laughs> so I mean, one, even the slightest calamity, and they are wiped out. And the credit rating is there, in effect, to force you to the best it can to try to prevent this thing from happening, to, to plan your life more sensibly and responsibly. And it isn't interesting, too, that the more short-term, the more irresponsible you are, the more short-term you're thinking, the higher an interest rate you're going to pay. So at least there's a little bit of a punishment. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The market is, is good all around, yeah. <laughs> in a sense. We've made a good case, Dr. Woods. Okay, Thank you. pleasure being with you, Jeff. Okay, everybody, that will do it. As we head into the weekend, or I guess we're sort of in the weekend right now, aren't we? It was a day late getting the episodes going. It was my fault. I forgot to upload something, and then I was on the road, and I was hitting myself. But anyway, I, I want to again remind you, do please check out the Ron Paul Liberty Report. They've been doing great, great work updating you on what's going on with the virus in particular and the economy as well, but just keeping an eye on what we're being told and how true it is and what the real numbers are. They've been doing really great work. So check that out at ronpaullibertyreport.com. You're not going to be disappointed with anything that has Ron Paul's name on it. So go check that out. Enjoy that. And I'll see you all next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.